Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the holiday 2007 edition of the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Andrew Sandoval Strauss about the history of the American Hotel. Upon beginning this project, I simply assumed that hotels were adaptation of, or were adaptations of European traditions of hospitality, sort of big building, the grand entrance. But what I found was that actually the hotel as we know it today originated in the United States. So that it was um, the idea of people eating together, the idea of egalitarianism, the idea of anyone should be able to to travel and be accommodated in style if they can pay, um, that really is characteristically American. And Claudia Nasson about the art of New Yorker illustrator William Steig. Because his work is so grounded in childhood and has, is so filled with honesty and there's, you know, and it's so topsy-turvy. There's all these qualities that really lend themselves for, you know, for him to be a children's book author and illustrator. Um, why he didn't start, you know, until he was 60? Well, he says simply because nobody asked him to do so before. <laughs> you know, which is kind of, that's the way, that's a standard response. Stay tuned. The 19th century saw many significant changes in the United States, and among them was a radical rethinking of the idea of American hospitality. In his new book, Hotel and American History, Andrew Sandoval Strauss makes the case that the modern hotel is a uniquely American invention that has conquered the world. Andrew Sandoval Strauss is assistant professor of history at the University of New Mexico. Andrew Sandoval Strauss, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Oh, thank you. So you're the author of Hotel in American History, and I was really struck early on by the fact that the pres- first president of the United States, George Washington, actually had quite a bit to do with the development of the American Hotel. What was his relationship with American hotelry? Uh, well, really it was George Washington's tours that made Americans aware of the need for a new kind of hospitality. Essentially what happened was that shortly after his inauguration, Washington decided that he should go out and meet the people. He should take uh, national tours and present himself in cities and towns. He decided at the very beginning of these tours that he would only stay in public houses, that is, inns and taverns. The logic there was that he didn't want to show special partiality to private citizens who quickly mailed him and said, you know, would you like to stay with us? He had to be above that as president. So he stayed in just inns and taverns, actually prompting the old saying, George Washington slept here. But what that often doesn't tell you is that George Washington often slept there rather badly. If you read his diaries, he's constantly complaining about the low quality of the food, the uncomfortableness of the bed, the fact that it had begun to rain and there wasn't another tavern for miles and miles, so that he was quite dissatisfied. Also, his hosts were unmistakably ashamed at the low level of hospitality they could offer. For example, there are a number of occasions in which innkeepers have to literally go around to local families and ask for you know, permission to borrow their silverware so they could have a complete service for the table. 
So there was this sense very early on that uh, if even the most popular man in the United States could not be put up in style, something new had to be done. And that something new was the hotel. So the first two booms in American hotel building really ran from right around the end of the revolution, beginning of the, uh, the Continental Congress, 1789 to 1815. And then there was that second boom after that. But the way you talk about it, it seems that the, the rationale for building these hotels in these two booms were really, really pretty different. What was the difference between them? Well, really, what I would say is that that first generation of hotels of the 1790s to the 18-teens was unmistakably experimental. People weren't quite sure what they were doing. The second uh, uh, generation of hotels was a lot more assured. For example, let's see, the very first hotel uh, attempted in the United States was the Union Public Hotel in Washington. It was planned but never completed, and indeed the financing worked out so poorly that the main investor ended up in debtor's prison. Um, there were hotels planned in New York, in um, Richmond, Virginia, in Newport, Rhode Island, but most of them were never, in fact, built. And again, of the few that were, most of them, in fact, all except for one, went bankrupt. So this is a period in which people have this important new idea that we need to have some kind of superior public accommodation, but the volume of travelers is simply not enough to keep them afloat so they all go bankrupt. In the second generation of hotels, what you see is that essentially the travel infrastructure or the transportation infrastructure has caught up with the idea of the hotel. Once you have things like steamboats and canals and railroads, they move huge numbers of people around. So when people begin to build hotels, let's say the Tremont House in Boston, the National Hotel in Washington, um, the United States Hotel in Philadelphia. These are very large buildings, but there are enough clients, there's enough business for them, so they manage to stay afloat. So while after the first generation of hotels, people lay off hotel building for about a decade because so many people get ruined financially, after the second generation of hotels, it's pretty much consistent hotel building for decades thereafter. Wasn't there also a bit of a class issue between the two booms? Um, that is true as well. The first generation of hotels uh, was intended to be exclusive. Um, they were very elegant buildings. If you look at the drawings of the architects, they unmistakably think that women should be wearing elaborate dresses, men fancy suits. So it was a, a deliberate attempt to exclude working men. And indeed, if you look at, uh, at labor newspapers at the time, they actually object and say, you know, it's just the advocates of the colony system of servility and adulation that spend time in hotels. The thing is, by the 1820s, you're getting into the age of uh, Jacksonian democracy, where the idea of equality among all white men um, is really the political buzzword of the time. So hotels have to be repositioned culturally, so that uh, hotel keepers begin to invite more people um, into their hotels. They don't uh, have that same idea that this is just for the elite. So in addition to the economic and material background, hotels mean something ideologically very different by the 1820s. So it was more than just the fact that, as you said earlier, there was this, all of a sudden there was an economic need for people to stay places, mainly because the travel had gotten easier and business had been expanding, so people needed this lodging. Right, exactly. But, uh, I mean, certainly 
economic causes are very important in the success of the hotel, but you certainly could have imagined that hotels would become successful and yet still be exclusionary, still be very elite. It was a specific political commitment to equality among white men. The desegregation of hotels happens much later. But it's just a, a commitment to equality that really forces hotel keepers to begin behaving differently, because otherwise they're just going to be too out of step with public opinion. So would it be fair to say that uh, hotel owners and developers in the 19th century America really developed the modern idea of the hotel that we see today all over the world? Oh, absolutely. And this is explicitly recognized uh, in the 19th century. Upon beginning this project, I simply assumed that hotels were adaptation of, or were adaptations of European traditions of hospitality, sort of big building, the grand entrance. But what I found was that actually the hotel as we know it today originated in the United States, so that it was um, the idea of people eating together, the idea of egalitarianism, the idea of anyone should be able to, to travel and be accommodated in style if they can pay, um, that really is characteristically American. So that when, for example, uh, Europeans visit American hotels, they notice very different arrangements of how people dined, how people uh, behaved in their rooms. I mean, you have explicit statements from Europeans, Latin Americans, saying the hotel in this country is a great institution that they have invented. Statements that say, uh, one British journalist said, um, an English hotel is to an American hotel as a periwinkle is to an elephant. Something <laughs> completely different. Um, so that the evidence from the 19th century says that everybody in sort of the Atlantic world is saying the Americans are the ones who invent this whole new system of hotel keeping, and they're the ones who leave the world in it. What were some of the things that innkeepers were worried about as far as legal activities? Well, um, people who ran public houses, uh, hotel keepers were, um, in a sense, a little bit up against it, right? Because the law said if anyone shows up and you have a room and they have money, you have to let them in. But what this law essentially did is it, it forced hotel keepers to admit people um, that might be misbehaving. Right? Unless they were clearly disorderly, you couldn't refuse them a room or they could sue you and win a substantial settlement. So it meant that lots of people could come to hotels and uh, take a room. And once they were in that room, right, it's a very private space. Um, you know, there's a lot of noise, and so you can't necessarily hear what's going on. Um, people misbehaved in all kinds of ways. Uh, the most common were forms of sexual misbehavior. There was a, a sort of probably apocryphal preacher who once said uh, that hotels were sinful. And somebody said, what do you mean? Why? He said, any place with a bar and that many beds has to be trouble. <laughs> so essentially there, there are a lot of people engaging in dalliances and... You know, if you're a hotel keeper, it's a tricky thing. You want to maintain the respectability of your house, but on the other hand, if there's a big uh, kerfuffle involving, let's say, the daughter of a prominent local family, as happened once in Iowa in the 1880s, um, simply uncovering the misbehavior and disciplining people, that could end up in the newspapers. The other thing, uh, the other sort of major kind of misbehavior that happens in hotels is theft, because, I mean, imagine, people are traveling around. They have big bags with a lot of their possessions. This is an age before traveler's checks, so that people are carrying large amounts of cash. There, there's an entire uh, subspecies of thief 
who operate in hotels. And indeed, Alan Pinkerton, the uh, founder of the Pinkerton Agency and popularizer of the term private eye, because his agency had a, a sort of a, an all-seeing eye as an emblem, in his autobiography, he describes hotel theft as the most common kind of stealing anywhere in the country. So there is a lot of uh, misbehavior. Hotels are designed to be well-oiled machines that provide hospitality to all, but uh, if you peer behind the curtain, there's a lot more going on. So what were the civic functions of hotels in the 19th century? Hotels, but, but in particular, whichever the, the nicest hotels were in a given city or town, they really were kind of the center of the social scene. If you wanted to go and uh, um, see who was coming to visit town, if you wanted to engage in local politics, if you just had some sort of club or organization that you belonged to, you probably would have ended up in a hotel sooner or later. Um, let me give you a couple of examples of, of, of how this worked. If you, let's start with politics. If you look at a sort of signal moment in American history, the eve of the Civil War, where you suddenly have a president of the United States and a president of the Confederacy, um, they are inaugurated two weeks apart in two different places, uh, Lincoln in New York and Davis in Richmond. And the biggest newspapers in the country at that time depict this event in exactly the same way. They show Lincoln on a hotel balcony, surrounded by throngs, you know, holding their top hats up in the air, people holding torches, kind of celebrating. Two weeks later, a different newspaper uses exactly the same iconography, with Jefferson Davis on top of a hotel balcony with people holding torches and throwing their hats in the air. This gives you a sense that when people wanted to represent the idea of the center of political activity, they often thought of a hotel. Another example is more everyday. One of the characteristic features of the United States, as Alexis de Tocqueville mentioned when he visited, um, was that Americans are constantly associating themselves to accomplish particular goals. He thought that associationalism was the really characteristic aspect of American life. But an association might be small, might, ha might not have enough money to build itself a headquarters. Maybe the, the homes of those who formed the association were too small to have meetings in. So if you look at newspapers in the 19th century, you see these constant notices of public meetings held in hotels. So you see uh, beekeepers, bookbinders, beer brewers, uh, you see insurance agents, you see church groups, you see fire companies, you see pretty much any kind of civic organization you can imagine. Sooner or later, they're going to have a big meeting in a hotel. Hotel in American History is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Andrew Sandoval Strauss, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. In 2003, the artist William Steig died at the age of 95, having left a long legacy as both a cartoonist and cover artist for The New Yorker, as well as the creator of some of the best-loved children's books of the late 20th century. To celebrate the 100th anniversary of his birth, the Jewish Museum in New York has assembled a retrospective of his work and teamed with Yale University Press to produce The Art of William Steig, the companion book to the exhibition. I'll be speaking with Claudia Nasson, the book's editor and associate curator of the Jewish Museum in New York City. Claudia Nasson, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. A lot of the themes in William Steig's work can be traced to his childhood. Could you give listeners a sense of his upbringing? Well, he, uh, he was born in Brooklyn, but soon after his birth, uh, he moved with his family to the Bronx. So most of his uh, 
childhood was spent in the Bronx, and he was, uh, you know, always playing outside. He was always a very active child, and a lot of that gets reflected in his art. You know, all these small fry series basically are rooted in that childhood, and uh, in you know him uh, playing with his gang in Claremont Park in the Bronx, and uh, going to the library for books and snow fights and all kinds of uh, you know things that kids do. He was very much connected to childhood, uh, both as an adult and as a child. He was always out there. So, so a lot of his art, particularly in the early stages, talks about, uh, not only do you see the kids, but you also see how the kids are viewing the adult relationships. How would you describe that? Well, I think uh, <clears throat> I think that uh, it's kind of, uh, that's, the, that's the way he does it. He's a very smart way of, of presenting kids in a way that, you know, kids really sense everything. And, you know, adults cannot outsmart kids, I think. And therefore, and he knows that very much so. So when you have an interaction between an adult and a kid in, in a Stai cartoon, he, always the kid ends up having the upper, upper hand, even if apparently it seems like the adult is in control. But it's a little bit of a deception. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, it's, it's hilarious because, you know, sometimes he, through his, you know, encounters, uh, through his depiction of encounters between adult and children, he just really exposes the weaknesses of adults or the insecurities in a very funny way, you know, but it's always a loving way. I mean, it's, uh, it's never sarcastic. It's always done with, you know, with empathy. I found the stories about his working habits kind of interesting, particularly as his career developed, how he would approach actually making a drawing. Uh, would you call him a particularly petic- meticulous planner, or was he? did he perform, create his art in other ways? No, not at all. He wasn't. He, think, you know, he preferred, most of all, just spontaneous drawing. Like just, he, he said he didn't like anyone to tell him what to do, even himself, not to tell himself what to do. So he really kind of, for him, his favorite kind of drawing was the drawing in which he didn't even know where he was going with it. That's why eventually in the 60s he completely abandons preliminary sketching and he just goes straight to final. It's just a very, you know, that was the happiest form of drawing for him. In the book, you talk about how you can kind of look at his career in three separate stages. His early career when he was producing what you want, traditional one-panel cartoons, primarily for The New Yorker. His uh, late career when he was starting to write about children, when he started to do children's books, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But that's that middle career, kind of in between like the mid to late 30s until really the early 50s, that a lot of people might not know some work that he did, particularly his work with the psychiatrist Willem Reich. Uh, what was the nature of his relationship with Willem Reich? Well, um... It was a kind of a very difficult period for for Stag, the late 30s and you know early 40s, and he was undergoing a lot of personal issues, and he was also ill. He had meningitis, and he couldn't get cured from you know from some sequelae from the disease, and he had seen a lot of doctors. Nobody seemed to be able to help him, and someone recommended that he see Willem Reich. Um, so in 1946, he went to see him. He met him, and he was in therapy with him for about a year. And uh, from that on, it, you know, we have this relationship which is very unusual between a psychiatrist and an artist, you know, which developed after that year. He finished his therapy, and then he continued a correspondence with Reich, which is a very profuse, uh, very prolific correspondence, um, and uh, followed Reich's uh, studies, illustrated Reich's uh, manifesto, uh, Listen, Little Man, which was published in 1948, um, and dedicated a very seminal book that he uh, did himself, uh, that Steig did, um, called At the Agony in Kindergarten, um, to Reich. So basically became kind of a, you know, Reich became a kind of a spiritual mentor for, for Steig. And even after Reich died in 1957, you know, 
um, Stike continued to, uh, you know, firmly believe in Stike's, in, um, sorry, in Reich's theories and, uh, until his death, and which is uh, pretty unusual. So, was, sorry, was this period rather challenging for Steig, I guess, I want to say professionally? I know that there was some talk early on that when he started to move away from the basic one-panel cartoons, that uh, New, the New Yorker was a little concerned that maybe the drawings weren't quite ready for them. Right, uh, that's true. Well, you know, back then, which is in the late 30s and 40s, Harold Ross was the editor of the New Yorker. He was a very conservative editor, at least as an editor, maybe as a person wasn't so much, but... Um, um, and so he felt that those drawings were not funny enough, uh, were not really for his readership, and he did not embrace them. So um, Steig felt the need to just find another avenue for you know, to publish them, and decided to uh, publish them in book form. So most of those drawings, you know, are published in book form today. They're out of print, but they, you know, they still you know can be found. And what's interesting is that you know. As you mentioned, it's a body of work that is unknown, but it's seminal in his career in the sense that really propelled him into a different uh, era and his, you know, different style, different, a lot of more exploration into the into the psychological uh, aspects of uh, of humankind, and you know, which eventually will become his signature style. I mean, if there is a style, although he has a multiplicity of styles. Was it hard to find some of those drawings for the exhibition? Well, the actually the uh, symbolic drawings survived, which is interesting because you know he uh, in the, his mid years he uh, kind of looked back at his early work and he wasn't too happy with it, and so it's, he's said to have disposed of some of that in all the early small fry drawings, for example, uh, but not the symbolic works. He he kept that, and so those are you know are still you know extant, and we could present them in the exhibition, which was a, a great thing. Starting in the 1960s, uh, Steig not so much I want to say changed, but started to add another uh, another form to his repertoire, which is children's books. Do we know why he started wanted to write children's books? Well, um, when you look at his career, I mean, you think you know it's not it's not just something you know that happens from one day to another. And how how come he starts doing that? Um, because his work is so grounded in childhood and has, it's so filled with honesty and. There's, you know, and it's so topsy-turvy. There's all these qualities that really lend themselves for, you know, for him to be a children's book author and illustrator. Um, why he didn't start, you know, until he was 60? Well, he says simply because nobody asked him to do so before. <laughs> you know, which is kind of, that's the way, that's a standard response, I guess. Um, and so he, uh, you know, basically a, a colleague of his at the New Yorker was starting an imprint of children's books. And, um, you know, offered several people in New Yorker to um, create children's books, and that's how he got into it. In 1968, he published CDB, which was a pen and you know a very simple, a very successful children's book, which was like a play with letters that, when you read them together, creates some kind of sentence, and with very simple pen and ink drawings. And from then on, it just was uh, you know was a match made in heaven. Although he himself said he hated illustrating because it was just too um, constraining for him, you know, the fact that, you know, he had to draw the same character every single page, have the same pocket address, or have the same, you know, um, the same qualities page after page, that he didn't relish very much. But the writing is superb, and the illustrations, even if he says he wasn't a good illustrator, that, that's nonsense. <laughs> 
Well, some of the titles that people may not know from uh, William Steig, and I tell you what, I started going through the book, which I liked very much. I went on to Amazon and started looking up Steig children's books. And the reviews, the way that people talk about them, are just, it's really amazing how much they affected people. Uh, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble, Dominic, Gorky Rises, which I think looks really, really cool, and probably best known to everybody, he's the man who invented the character Shrek. Right. Well, I think that uh, they they made an impact because they are so filled with honesty. I mean, then that's that's not something we should take for granted in children's book illustration and and, and writing. I mean, it's 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 a rare quality, and he never talks down to kids. He never, you know, underestimates his readership, and so kids really, you know, appreciate that, and that you know connects immediately with them. And he addresses so many issues that you don't see so much being addressed in children's literature but within the safe you know the safe environment of a picture book for example um in his last book when everybody wore a hat which is an autobiographical book that brings him back to his childhood um he depicts his parents fighting i mean that's not a scene that you will see in a picture book uh but it's still a quintessential childhood experience every child has witnessed his parents fighting and just to present it in a picture book gives a safe, you know, way of dealing with it. The child all of a sudden understands that he or she is not alone in this experience. This is something that happens and, you know, and that eventually, you know, may get resolved, may not, but this is not, you're not alone in this experience. And I think that's a, a tremendous, it, that's really kind of uh, shows the tremendous honesty in his part. That must have been quite a household considering not only did it produce William, but his brother Arthur, who's just a fairly well-known artist in his own right. Uh, yes, well, Arthur was the youngest, and so he was the closest to to William Steig, and, you know, kind of because uh, when Steig, you know, basically became in charge of supporting the family, he had to support his brother, um, you know, during the Depression. They lost all these savings in the stock exchange, so, he, you know, his younger brother was at home still, and so he started peddling his his uh, drawings, and so that became, you know, his relationship with that brother, I think, was just rather seminal and uh, he also the brother was a very talented person on his own right he um, a lot of um, some of the wonderful children's books that he, that Steig uh, illustrated and wrote are he uses this paint which is a paint you know his brother used to uh, manufacture artist paint um, and uh, they're just the colors are so vibrant and so fantastic um, so he was a very talented man himself and you know it's just uh, he really had a you know, his family was always in, you know, both his, clo- you know, his uh, nuclear family as well as his extended family since he married so many times. I mean, there was, there was a lot of people in his life. So now you've seen quite a bit of his work. Do you have a favorite piece? A <laughs> favorite piece? Oh, that's hard. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, since we are uh, kind of a few days after, before Thanksgiving, I would say one of my favorite is uh, a drawing he did for a New Yorker cover uh, of... Uh, for Turkey coming to a fortune teller for to <laughs> <laughs> and of course she doesn't see it very well. Um, it, the future is rather bleak, so she sheds a tear, you know, over her uh, crystal ball, uh, you know, as uh, you know, facing the turkey who's sitting in front of her. Uh, it's a fantastic, a very vibrant, uh, colored uh, drawing. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, although he conceived it as a New Yorker cover for Thanksgiving, it was never published until it just somehow got, you know, sometimes, you know, cartoonists would produce much more than what would get published. And those works would stay in the magazine, and then all of a sudden, you know, that, you know, they would go into the bank and, you know, review, 
you know, drawings that are still there and were unpublished. And Tina Brown, when she became the editor in 92, she was going through uh, unpublished drawings and found this drawing, which is fantastic, and had it, uh, and she um, had it published as a full-color page. It, didn't, it wasn't a cover, but it was a, it's just a, a fantastic, uh, fantastic drawing. The Art of William Steig is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Claudia Nasson, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. One year ago this month, the very first episode of the Yale Press podcast was released. For all those listeners who have joined us from that start, and all the authors who have taken the time to speak with me, thanks for making this a great year for the show. Of course, you probably have lots of gifts to purchase this holiday season, and you can find no better place to shop than the Yale University Press website, www.yalebooks.com, and no better prices than the titles currently on sale. Go to the holiday sale banner on the front page of the site and make all those people in your life oh so very happy. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Audio, or any number of sites, or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. I look for the subscription button on the lower page. you also find the show notes on the Yale Press blog. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondek. I'm the producer and host of the show. Happy holidays, and we'll see you in 2008. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2007. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.